If you'd like to support my work, which is entirely offered by donations only, uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC. And the PayPal is on the podcast site. So that's about it. Tonight we're going to be talking about one of the most important core insights of the Buddha on the night of his awakening. In fact, it's entirely plausible to argue that the Buddha's very awakening rested on the insight into the principle of causality and how this insight then played out to create an entire psychology and an entire approach to addressing suffering in life all followed from this single insight. And we're going to be talking about how this insight might uh, change the way we would approach healing from trauma and uh, some of the insights that it brings to bear in addressing triggers. We'll talk more about what triggers are and all that. But let's start with a fundamental insight, causality. And this insight, again, was the epical moment of the Buddha's enlightenment. The insight was that all things arise and exist due to certain conditions or causes that come together, and that when these conditions uh, cease, the things that they create cease as well. So the Buddha saw all things, all states of being, everything as being caused, being the result of something else that it relies upon for its very existence. Um, This insight, Idipakayata, is repeated hundreds of times throughout the canon, over and over and over again. And the Buddha even uses the same phrase to have this, you must have that. If you don't have that, you don't get this, essentially. So all things depend on previous or, or conditions for their very existence. Let me give you an example. So an obvious external example would be if you want to grow peppers, uh, peas, or tomatoes, a garden would need to have soil, water, sunlight. I mean, this is the limits of my knowledge of gardening. But without the soil, without the water, without the sunlight, you can't grow tomatoes or peas. They just won't exist. So their very existence relies upon those underlying conditions. Now, this probably sounds a little obvious, but when we start to as the Buddha did, extrapolate a dharma from it, there's all kinds of fascinating implications. Primarily, these implications are not about the material world around us, but they're psychological implications. From the Buddhist perspective, all functional and dysfunctional behaviors have causes. Behaviors are not inherent traits. They are caused. They, have, they are symptoms They are results of something else. They have, again, underlying uh, conditions that bring about behaviors, psychological states of being, uh, all of everything we experience is in some way caused. Now, sometimes these... um, These causes can be societal... Uh, environmental. If you grow up in a neighborhood where there's systemic lack of work opportunity, employment, um, that in itself could give rise to an underlying state of desperation and could lead to all kinds of antisocial behaviors, understandably, because there's societal pressures or conditions that lead to things like crime and so forth. 
crime doesn't exist. There's not anybody, nobody just comes into the world a criminal. Conditions have to come together to create that behavior. Likewise, positive states, self-esteem isn't a given. It's the result of sustained generosity, sustained um, uh, actions of of secure attachment with others, bonding. It's the result of taking steps associated with agency, addressing challenges and so forth. So it's important from the, this first insight to understand that everything we are experiencing is the result, all of the behaviors, all of the thoughts, all of our impulses, all of everything is the result of an underlying cause. And thus, from a Buddhist perspective, if we want to stop a behavior, we don't focus on repressing the behavior we focus on looking at uh, something else to address it. Now, from this insight, the Buddha uh, fashions an entire behavioral psychology called the Paticca Samapada. In this, and I'm going to just summarize a small section of it because it's actually far more complex than I have time to address in this talk, but... Essentially, one core insight is what we focus our attention on is a condition that creates feelings, good or bad. Feelings, in turn, are conditions that create impulses to act. And those impulses to act have long-term implications on whether we feel good about ourselves or bad about ourselves. Now, This has a remarkable implication. The Buddha, some 2,500 years ago, over 2,500 years ago, is saying that actions are not authored by thoughts. Actions are authored by feelings. Again, the Paticca Samapada says, what we focus attention on creates feelings. Feelings create impulses to act. And from those impulses to act, later on there's thought and there's suffering. Now, most of us like to think that we act in accordance to how we think. But the Buddha is saying, no, we act in accordance to how we feel. And this actually, while it sounds remarkable, it's actually now the fundamental insight of contemporary neuropsychology and clinical psychology. Around 130 years ago, the great William James with the James Lang theory in the 1890s showed that people's impulses to act are not actually driven by thoughts. They're driven by actually states of being, feelings. And if you want to look it up, the James Lang theory, I'd encourage it because, again, uh, that is a much larger topic. But... Uh, 30, some 30 years ago, it was even more refined by the great Antonio Damasio, his semantic marker theory, which shows that <clears throat> choices and behaviors are issued by somatic feelings in the body, not by, as much as we want to believe, thinking. So, for example, if we come home and we become aware We focus our attention on the fact that we're alone. There's nobody else there. That might create an uncomfortable feeling of loneliness. That feeling of loneliness would create a desire for something pleasant. For many people, that might be food. And that leads to the action, binge eating, emotional eating, eating away our loneliness, the Eating of carbs or sugar raises glutamate and dopamine, and so for a while, the feelings go away, the loneliness goes away. But then over time, this tendency to binge eat because we feel lonely creates even more suffering, a sense of shame, disappointment in ourselves, and even greater loneliness, because the more we're caught up in binge eating, the less we're likely to actually pick up the phone and call someone. Another example, let's look at a positive example. If we focus attention on something cool, 
uh, for me, uh, whenever I walk to the gym, which is pretty much every day, uh, to get my incre- in, uh, inept workout, um, I pass by an Apple store. And if I allow my attention to focus on the window of the Apple store, I'm greeted with some of the shiniest, sparkliest, sleek objects. And if I focus too long, that creates a desire to obtain. It's a positive feeling. I feel good. Look how shiny those new headphones that are exorbitantly expensive or the the new iMac looks. And that creates craving. And so if I allow myself to look too much, it'll create a craving to spend money that I really don't have on something that I really actually don't need. And when I get home, I'll be left feeling slightly, you know, why did I buy all this? So, in short, uh, let's review. All behaviors and states are caused by conditions. Um, all behaviors, actions can are authored by feelings, actually, if we look at them at its most fundamental. Uh, Trying to repress behaviors and actions won't work because we're not taking into account that they're really symptoms and we have to look at something else. Rather than the behaviors, we have to look at the feelings that create them or the conditions that create them. So to end suffering from this Buddhist perspective Rather than trying to repress behaviors or white-knuckle it or just try to not binge eat or try to not, you know, buy something shiny and new that we don't need, there's really only two really global ways to proceed. The first is we remove the causes. If all things are essentially symptoms or results of causes, well, one way to address um, the, the behavior, the action we don't like, is to address the cause. And so, for example, an alcoholic might try to spend their entire recovery uh, by not going to bars or any social situations where drinks are uh, a focus of the activity. And some actually do spend a lot of their early recovery Uh, sustaining uh, abstinence by avoiding all areas where liquor is prominently sold. A gambler might try to avoid gambling by never going to casinos or any places where people might encourage betting, card games and the like. Um, Likewise, the person who struggles with emotional eating due to loneliness might decide to uh, constantly be around people uh, and uh, a community so that they didn't experience the loneliness which created the desire to binge eat. Now, while this is an entirely reasonable way to address suffering, to avoid or make sure that the conditions that cause behaviors don't come to bear, it leads to an over-reliance on what's called avoidance coping, which is actually, as we'll see, very common with people who've experienced trauma. They experience all kinds of symptoms of anxiety, and generally the way they will try to um, regulate their anxiety is by avoiding any situation or place where they experience Uh, vulnerability, where their heart starts racing, where they feel anxious. The problem with always addressing uh, behaviors and states of being and anxiety and all that by avoiding the conditions that bring it to bear is that life gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The person who goes through a difficult breakup and avoids walking through the neighborhood where their ex lived, their life gets smaller. They can't go to an entire neighborhood. And then eventually they avoid people that their ex uh, they shared in common. Their life gets smaller and so forth. 
So anytime we rely on avoidance as a way to essentially stop a behavior or a state of being, uh, it generally makes our life far less robust and it removes choices and it leads to an over-reliance on simply staying at home and not doing things. Not a good outcome. So, but there's a second way the Buddha noted to address suffering, and that's going to be more the focus of tonight's, uh, continuance of tonight's talk, which is rather than focus on removing the conditions, the Buddha talks about uh, there's a weak link in the chain of behavior, the psychology that said what we focus attention on creates feelings, what the feelings then cause impulses to act, and the actions then can cause suffering over time, especially if they're unwholesome behaviors. The Buddha noted that it's entirely possible to feel things without giving in to the impulses to act. So the person who comes home and they're alone and they feel lonely and they don't feel very good might experience the impulse to emotionally eat. But if they learn to self-soothe, if they learn to uh, investigate, tolerate, be with the discomfort of loneliness, they won't have to give in to the next step of the chain, which is to binge eat. Likewise, the person who feels unfulfilled in their job, doesn't feel recognized, doesn't feel uh, that their work is being validated by others, who, when they feel this sense of emptiness of recognition, feels an impulse to shop, to create a feeling of being rewarded, being seen by others, a feeling of, ma of, of mattering. So that's the symptom, shopping, but the underlying cause is a feeling of not being recognized, not being validated, not being important to others. So likewise, this person could actually learn to be with, tolerate, soothe the feeling of I'm not being paid attention to or validated for my hard work. This is now in psychology known as distress tolerance. It's kind of a, uh, you know, heavy-duty phrase. Distress tolerance, which is very important in many, many forms of behavioral psychology, including CBT, DBT, and so forth, is the ability to be with a feeling or a stimuli that generally causes anxiety, or craving or addictive behaviors to be with the feelings and to self-soothe in a way that diminishes the feelings rather than leading inevitably to the, to the addictive behaviors that follow. So, for example, um, someone who's been cheated on in a relationship and that cheated on is is a traumatic experience. And so in the aftermath, in subsequent relationships, they're very suspicious, they're very prone to jealousy, and very often they'll simply call it quits because being in a relationship uh, creates this impulse to run because they don't want to experience the feelings of suspicion, jealousy, vulnerability, stemming from the original loss. To change behaviors, that person would either have to find someone who's always with them all the time so that they didn't ever have to encounter the jealousy and that would hardly work, or B, they could simply learn to tolerate the feelings of vulnerability suspicion, jealousy, learn to self-soothe so that the feelings didn't inevitably lead them to quit or run from all intimacy in their life. This brings us directly to trauma. Traumatic events have 
many maladaptive consequences. Uh, too many to mention, but just a few. During traumas, most many people dissociate. The hippocampus goes offline, leaving only the amygdala to record the disconnected impressions without a coherent chronology, i.e. a narrative of what happened to them. Without a chronology or a narrative, a beginning, a middle, and an end, the trauma in the aftermath emotionally feels like it's still occurring because the left hippocampus was switched off and it has no timestamp saying that event was in the past. People don't remember how they survived, so they feel stuck again and again in a vulnerable situation where that event could recur. So for somebody who's suddenly violently mugged, hit over the head, loses consciousness, wakes up, all of their possessions are gone because there's no narrative. The right brain subsequently, whenever they're out walking around, could still feel like the same event could happen. Trauma works like almost like as one uh, trauma psychologist calls a time capsule. When something triggers us, something reminiscent of the traumatic event, the feelings and emotions that we first experienced during the original trauma are now playing out once again in the mind. So the mind is now split between one part of us that's like, why am I feeling so anxious? Why am I so triggered? I don't get it. Versus another, versus the fact that we're really feeling anxious. We're really feeling frightened, as if a real threat was there. During trauma, there's very often, as we say, the dissociated freeze state, where we become immobilized. We can't move. We can't act on our defense. People freeze when they're being attacked, freeze when they're being assaulted, freeze when they're in an accident, freeze when they're, uh, they're, they're getting terrible, uh, distressing news. And so our natural survival behaviors are interrupted, cut off, leaving the individual's autonomic nervous system in the aftermath prone to shut down, dissociate more and more and more. They're now, in the aftermath of a trauma, more likely to literally be overwhelmed and freeze. It's only when we can act out or fully uh, express the survival behaviors that got cut off that people learn to restore their autonomic nervous system so that they can tolerate stress in the aftermath of a trauma. And lastly, and for the point of tonight's talk, probably one of the greatest dysfunctional outcomes of trauma is what I would call fear coupling. Fear coupling is when safe situations become linked with extreme survival reactions, as if a real threat is present. So fear coupling can be very obvious. Somebody is riding their bike, they get into a bike accident where they hit a pothole, they go over, they hit their head, they get a concussion, they break a collarbone, whatever. And so from that point on, riding a bike, even on a safe street where there's no potholes, they become very anxious because their back with in the triggers the riding a bike and so it creates it activates that time capsule of anxiety and fear so common examples might also be a soldier who comes home from a war environment hears a sudden sound and ducks even though the sound is that of simply a car backfiring because in war the soldier a sudden sound might be a bomb going off after the death of a child, a parent might become overbearing and extremely engulfing of their remaining children because thinking about their children, being with their children activates anxiety that they might lose that child also as well. So this can, of course, lead to avoidance coping. People will 
if they get in a bike accident, they might not ever get on a bike again. Again, if they if they traumatically lose a loved one or somebody cheats on them, they might not get in a relationship again. If somebody um, uh, loses a beloved animal that they've lived with for a long time, that death can create avoidance, uh, anxiety in rela- relation to having a, a loved animal, so they might avoid having another pet. Often, unfortunately, fear couplings aren't obvious. We have no clue what caused our anxiety. I work with many people who have all kinds of symptoms, but there's no way of knowing what originally caused the event to happen. For, for people who are uh, inexplicably become anxious riding a subway or driving on bridges or heights or people who in in you know in relationships the moment that commitment comes up feel an extreme urge to run the early events of life before we develop long-term explicit memories that we can recall the first four or five years of life the amygdala is working perfectly fine and so we might enter our adult lives with a host of triggers of which we have absolutely no recollection. Some people might avoid being around people who are angry because in early childhood, one of the caregivers was uh, prone to rage or explosive uh, affect dysfunction. The great uh, neuropsychologist Joseph Ledoux used an example of the ways that the sources or the causes of triggers in the aftermath of trauma can be very often very difficult to pin down or to understand what created them. Ledoux uses the example of a couple breaking up in a restaurant. They're both very upset. And as they go through the final moments of uh, uh, the end of the relationship, they're both looking at a checkered tablecloth and then years later, when one sees a, the same checkered tablecloth, they might become sad. They have no idea why. If they see the same pattern, the same type of checkered pattern in somebody's shirt, they might feel sad. The smells that were present during a trauma might years later create anxiety. Somebody who's in a car crash and uh, they don't realize it, but the last song that was on the radio was Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. Just throwing that in for good measure. But um, Don't Fear the Reaper was playing. They might forget that that song was on the radio when the car crashed. But years later, when they hear the song Don't Fear the Reaper, their entire body might tense, might become... Might become tight, might become uh, in a state of hypervigilance. Um, Turning the scattered memories of traumas into narratives, while it can help timestamp and help us process some of the trauma triggers in most cases, in most cases it's impossible to certainly narrate and understand what created the triggers and the symptoms associated with trauma because the symptoms can be related to, uh, they could be, a a trigger can have been present during a trauma that we don't remember or the the triggers might have been uh, from a developmental trauma that happened before we developed explicit narrative memories. They exist in the right brain, but not in the left. An early exposure to a dog or a cat that bit us, if it happened before we developed explicit narrative memory, we might, in our life, experience fear of cat or dogs. We don't know why, because the original events happened before explicit memories. This means that the key, very often, is not trying to remove the causes and conditions 
but actually trying to develop the stress tolerance. The stress tolerance is moving from but thinking, for instance, I'd love to travel, but I get anxious so I don't travel, to and thinking. And thinking is, I'd love to travel and I get anxious. So I still travel, I just have to learn to be with the anxiety that travel creates. This is the very akin to the great Buddhist teaching of Milarepa. Milarepa was a, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist monk who lived in a cave. Uh, he's thought to be actually based somewhat, his life story is supposed to be based somewhat on fact and somewhat mythology. Uh, but the story goes that one day Milarepa was outside of his cave and a, uh, when he returned home, uh, his cave was filled with demons that were scurrying about. And at first Milarepa tried to chase away the demons. He tried to scare them away. He tried to um, usher them out of the cave. This didn't work. The more he tried to uh, scare away, uh, remove, chase away the demons, the more they proliferated. So finally, my cat has slipped into the room. Uh, so finally, Milarepa realized that the best way was not to try to get rid of the demons, but to simply offer to share the cave with him. So he actually learned to coexist with the demons. And then there was finally one demon that was particularly scary, particularly terrifying, with a huge jaw that uh, literally could breathe fire. And um, so Milarepa, uh, to uh, solve his great fear and l coexist with this demon, literally had to put his head into the demon's jaw to show himself that the demon wasn't real, that the demon was just an illusion. Until he tried to fight, resist, scare away the demon, the demon seemed very rare, rare, but the moment he put his head in the demon's jaw, the demon disappeared. This is, of course, an analogy for the human mind. When we have distressing thoughts, distressing feelings, we will very often try to repress, to push down, to get rid of difficult, scary thoughts, obsessive, intrusive thoughts. We'll try to get rid of upsetting feelings by pushing them out of awareness. And of course, that doesn't work. In Milarepa's case, he chooses distress tolerance. He actually learns to live with the demons, which of course analogous to upsetting intrusive thoughts and feelings, symptoms as they were. He learns to be with the difficult experience rather than to try to repress. He learns instead to self-soothe. And this requires putting at times his head in the demon's jaw, doing something that feels absolutely terrifying. And so that becomes, of course, one of the key ways through what is now known as exposure therapy and other forms of, of trauma treatment, where the key is to train people how to orient to safety cues while they're in the presence of a trigger that makes them want to run, that makes them anxious, that makes them want to return to safety at all costs that activates fight, flight, freeze impulses. The key being to extend the person's ability to be with unpleasant feelings rather than to act on the impulses. So how do we do that? How do we essentially self-soothe? 
Well, there's different practices. One is pendulation. The person might spend time bringing their awareness to that which is stressful. For instance, if someone gets anxious or activated going on a date, they might pay attention to the sensations that are unpleasant in the body, the anxiety. Then they might pendulate awareness to a part of the body that feels good, that doesn't feel tense. Then they bring awareness back to the area in the body that feels stressful. They breathe a few times, then they bring awareness to a part of the body that doesn't feel stressful. You can do this even while you're in the presence of someone else. In fact, all the time in my work in counseling, I'm constantly scanning my body and checking for areas that get tense and soothing and relaxing them so that I can be with people while they are extremely upset or talking about difficult material. Another way along the lines of pendulation is we can practice self-soothing by softening the belly. Generally, when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, that's the, the, the part of pain, difficult feelings that makes us want to act, that makes us want to fight or flee or shut down. The fastest way to, one of the fastest ways to essentially soften that process is to relax the belly. You'll notice by this time that when you are triggered and uncomfortable and anxious, that your stomach contracts and gets very tight. So softening, relaxing the belly has an almost immediate uh, result in making it easier to be with stimuli that's triggering. Another way is to extend the length of the out-breath. The out-breath releases acetylcholine and the vagal nerve and is associated with parasympathetic states. It soothes and essentially over time lowers respiration rates, heart rates, and at time switches us from sympathetic back into social engaged states or homeostasis in the brain. It should be noted finally that all of our triggers hold remnants of trauma. They keep us consciously away from traumatic memories. So the more that we try to practice distress tolerance, to learn to self-soothe so that we don't practice avoidance coping, so that we actually learn to be with states of, of being activated, uncomfortable feelings without acting on their behalf, the more likely buried memories are likely to be recalled. Essentially, any form of trauma healing, whenever triggers and impulses are involved, if you learn or practice being with the trigger without giving in to the impulse, the repressed memories that have been separated or compartmentalized are likely to return. So it's worth, when we work with any kind of anxiety disorders stemming from trauma, to have in our life people that we can process those memories as they start to return. Now, for those of you who are still out there, who still uh, are following, who didn't get dismayed by the uh, loss of our Wi-Fi signal. Um, I'm going to now lead a meditation that uh, puts into practice these um, insights. So I encourage you to find a comfortable seated position and close our eyes. And trying to bring your awareness back into the body.
and find the area of your body associated with your feet and really try to inhabit your feet which means try to find the sensations associated with the toes, maybe the left foot, the toes of the left foot, the space between the top of the foot and the bottom of the foot. Try the other foot if you've not been scanning both feet. So try just to be close to inhabiting, being as close to the sensations of the right foot. Really just find the sensations associated with the toes, the heel, the arch top of the foot and the space, the muscles of the foot. And then bring awareness up to the calves. See if you can do both calves at the same time. Just finding sensations of tension, tightness, any other sensations, warmth or coldness associated with your lower legs. And now bringing awareness up to the thighs and just continue this process of finding the sensations. Until as you start to move up the body, you no longer need to visualize the body as you feel the sensations. You no longer need to even locate them, such as this these sensations are where my thighs are from, or this sensation from my buttocks, or my back, or my chest, or my throat. You just experience the body as a constellation of sensations associated with liquidity, solidity, warmth or coldness, tightness or release of muscles, pain, lack of pain, that's not areas that feel good. The body, we let go of the image and just experience the entire body as a night sky of sensations. And our awareness is now no longer, if we can practice this, no longer looking above, from above, the head looking down the body. But your awareness now floats amongst the constellation of sensations, no longer feeling trapped in a body, 
feeling free to move about. Imagine now that you're no longer paying attention to the image of your body and your mind, just the sensations. Imagine now that the sounds around you can be integrated into this constellation of sensations where there's no longer a sense that sounds coming from your environment are outside and that the sensations of your body are inside. There's no longer any outside or inside, just present time sensations, some of which might be caused by body states and some caused by external states, but we no longer pay attention. We no longer classify them as inside or out. Just allow consciousness to expand, to include everything that's occurring in the present moment. Even states of mind and thoughts are just clouds moving through an open sky.
The key to this practice is simply whenever our attention gets caught by one of the thoughts or memories floating through this constellation of present time events and pulls us into a virtual reality that is in no way largely comprised of actual sensations from the present, is to return to the sensations all around us, to relax back into the present. Sometimes the easiest way is when we start getting lost in thought, the shoulders will start to clench or the belly will start to tense. And so relaxing the shoulders, softening the belly, back into awareness of present time sensations, not only is associated with return home to the present, but also with a soothing release of stress. Now let's bring to mind a situation, a setting, a set of conditions, as it were, that activates for us really uncomfortable feelings. And those feelings in turn trigger or activate impulses associated with fleeing, getting angry, addictive behaviors, craving, consuming, binging. Classic example might be a situation where we have to speak in public. For many of us, that's an uncomfortable condition that creates feelings of self-consciousness and anxiety that then triggers a desire to drink or to avoid any situation where we might have to speak in public. For some of us, it might be being in an unfamiliar setting where different people that we don't know are paying attention to us. Or for some, it might be intimate romantic settings that trigger an anticipation of rejection. For some, it might just be the unpleasant, mundane experience of returning home to find we're alone and all the feelings that might conjure up and from those feelings, cravings. So see if you can visualize or bring to mind a setting or situation that triggers or activates a behavior that has become automatic and dysfunctional. 
And while we visualize this, we're going to practice some distress tolerance. We're going to slow down our outbreaths so they're longer than our inhalation. We're going to soothe the belly, soften the belly, relax the belly. And we're going to take a tip from the Buddha who suggested to his practitioners that when they're in scary, triggering settings to repeat the metaphrase, may all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. So hold in mind a trigger, something that activates a desire to fight or flee or shut down or just can be difficult to bear, a situation that makes us uncomfortable. While you hold the image, soften the belly, relax the muscles in the face, breathe slowly, and repeat, may all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. So I'm going to, in a moment, ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, really take your time. Release the image from your mind. Bring your awareness back to something soothing in your environment. Rest your eyes on something in the room that where you are that is neutral or pleasant and just allow the body sensations to soften 
There's no need to rush your attention back to the screen. 